The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelations chapter 10 and 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, And he said to me, Take and eat it, and you will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples, and nations, and languages, and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is, heaven, it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, though no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been torment to those who dwell on the earth, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe had passed. Behind the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, 
and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and for the time of death to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were great flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so I know what you're thinking. What an obvious Christmas text, right? Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Eric Olson. I'm one of the deacons from Sacred City Davenport. Um, and it is my absolute pleasure and privilege to be with you here this morning, this the fourth and final week of Advent. Now, perhaps you're like me and um, you have not traditionally celebrated Advent. Uh, I did not grow up in a Christian family, so um, there was no um, Advent wreaths or candles uh, and really not much conversation about Jesus at all at Christmas time. Our, conv- our, our conversations uh, around Christmas usually centered around food and gifts and uh, what time it was finally uh, acceptable to get out of anything resembling dress clothes, right? So... Uh, But since coming to Sacred City, um, I thought I had generally picked up on what this whole idea of Advent was. I thought Advent was about looking back at the birth of Jesus and celebrating um, that by looking through the lenses of hope and peace and joy and love. And so a couple of months ago, when Pastor Sam asked me if I could fill the pulpit uh, the fourth week of Advent, I jumped at the opportunity. Sure, I can talk about love, and best of all, I get to avoid preaching out of Revelation. That's a win-win in my book. So you can imagine my surprise when I opened the email he sent me, Revelation chapters 10 and 11. So as I have found out, Advent is not just about celebrating the birth of Jesus, but also um, his second coming. So then Revelation is an obvious Advent book for us. That would have been helpful information to know. So if you're a visitor here this morning, I want you to know that we didn't just pick this text because of its obvious Christmas, Christmas themes, but rather... We are about halfway through our study through um, the book of Revelation, often confusing and sometimes on the surface, scary book. So from us to you, Merry Christmas. Welcome to Sacred City Church. So we got a lot of ground to cover, so um, I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we'll jump in and we'll see what the Lord has for us. Uh, Father... Um, I thank you for gathering us together uh, this morning. I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for uh, the worship and liturgy this morning. I thank you um, that, God, your church is something that you build. Your people are um, people that you've called. Um, And so, Father, as I speak um, your word this morning, as I um, proclaim Um, what it is that you have for us in these chapters. Uh, Father, I pray that you would um, give life to my words, um, that you would hide me in your, um, behind this pulpit and in your word this morning, that my words would be your words, um, that you would keep my foolishness at bay and that 
um, you would do the work of um, illuminating hearts uh, to the goodness of your gospel and your power over all of creation. So Father, um, I pray that uh, everything that is said today would be for your glory and for our joy. Amen. All right, so I don't know about your family, but my family growing up uh, loved layered gifts at Christmas time. Who knows what I'm talking about, right? Layered gifts are these, maybe you'd get a big box, and inside that box you'd, you'd have some sort of gift, but there'd also be another box to open, right? So maybe you'd open the big box, and you'd pull it out, and there'd be batteries and another wrapped gift. And so <clears throat> then uh, you, you would continue down and it'd be box after box after box with piece after piece after piece. And, and with each piece, you were getting a clearer sense of what the actual gift was, right? It was this teasing out of the final gift. Now, in some ways, that is what John has been doing for us here in Revelation, especially over these last couple of weeks. See, everything that we have been looking at to this point is a developing picture of the end of all things. More specifically, what must take place in between Christ's first coming and his second coming as he, re, as he works and renews and restores all things. And we talked about that it's not laid out as much in a, in a chronological way, but rather is to be thought of as a picture that is meant to become clearer and clearer as the book develops. So where, where have we been so far? Back in chapter one, if you remember, John gave us an arresting picture of the resurrected Jesus. It said he was standing with a long robe, wool white hair, eyes of fire, and his face was shining like the sun. And out of his mouth was a two-edged two sword. Then in chapter four, John is taken to heaven, to the throne room of God. And there we see this incredible picture of God. And John said that God looked like precious jewels with a rainbow over his head. John also says that around this throne were 24 other thrones in which the elders sat. And among those thrones, there were four living creatures with eyes all over their body and six wings. And day and night, they'd say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And every time these creatures would call out, which, if you didn't pick up on it, is always, the elders would fall down before God in worship, casting their crowns before him, and they would say, worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. And if we remember, in God's right hand, there was a scroll with seven seals. And this scroll was likened to a Roman will of inheritance. We saw in that scroll that it was uh, the deed to paradise. Inside that scroll was everything that Adam was promised way back in Genesis. And as God's holding this scroll, a challenge is put out to the entire universe who is worthy to take this scroll and open its seven seals? Who has the ability to unlock paradise? And nobody moves. And John ugly cries. He loses it. 
And as he's crying, one of the elders says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John looks and he sees another picture of the resurrected Jesus, a lamb as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And this resurrected Jesus walks up and he takes possession of the scroll. And all of heaven erupts in worship and singing and praise. But then, as Jesus begins to break open the seals, as he begins to open the deed to paradise, it didn't appear as though we were moving towards utopia, did it? Jesus begins to break open the seals, and John looks down on earth and sees utter chaos erupting. War, discord, famine, death. See, there was this major juxtaposition shown. As the scene in heaven was moving towards opening up the deed to paradise, the scene on earth looked like it was moving towards hell on earth. Just before the seventh seal was broken, though, there was this dramatic pause. There was a break from the breaking of seals to offer courage and confidence to God's people in the midst of the chaos to encourage them to persevere until the end. In that pause, John reminded God's people of their being a sealed during the time of the unsealing. In this pause, John reminds God's people of their salvation that has been earned by the slain lamb, earned by Christ. And then we see when the final seal is broken, we see that everything that God has promised all the way back in the Old Testament through the prophets has come to its final conclusion. The mystery of God has been unsealed and paradise has been unlocked for God's people. <laughs> End of story, right? Well... Not exactly. Last week, Pastor Sam walked us through a second set of judgments in Revelation, the trumpet judgments. And as he talked about last week, these, ju these trumpet judgments are not to be thought of as a second set of judgments chronologically, but rather a look from a different angle at the same period of judgment. But last week, we didn't make it through all, or all seven of the trumpet judgments. We made it through the first six. And so now that's where we find ourselves today. And just like the break in between the sixth and seventh, seventh seals, we now find ourselves in another intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And just like that pause before in, in the seal judgments, John here is going to address God's people, the church. But this time, he isn't just going to remind them of their salvation, but also of their vocation. His reminder here is not just that you have been sealed by Christ and given salvation through the blood of the Lamb, but now there is a way that they are to walk out this life. What is it that God's people are to be doing in between Christ's first coming and his second coming? Okay, so... A little disclaimer here before we, before we get in too deep. Uh, there's a lot going on in these texts. And so I'm going to do my best to not theologically nerd out and uh, dig into all the details as much as I'd love to. 
Um, rather, we're going to step back and kind of look at this more thematically. And why I want to do that is, I think if we start getting into all the specifics of what's going on with the seven thunders that John is forbid to write down, and what's up with this beast coming out of the bottomless pit, bottomless pit what is that? I think we run the risk of missing the forest for the trees. The reason why these chapters are here. There's a ton of good content on this, and, and if you have questions on that and that's important to you, go ahead and throw all your questions in an email and send it to me at sam at sacredcitychurch.com, and we'll see if we can't get those answered for you, all right? <clears throat> all right, so again, the reason why these chapters are here are to show us how we are to live now in the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Now, put, put quite simply, the church is called to do what, John, what we see John doing in chapter 10 and what we see the two witnesses doing in chapter 11. And that is to prophesy and to persevere. Okay, so first, we are called to do what John does in chapter 10. We see in chapter 10 that a mighty angel comes down from heaven, and in his hand is a, a little scroll that is open. John is told to eat the scroll, and that it will be bitter in his stomach, but sweet in his mouth. So, John eats it, and just like the angel says, it is sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Then John is told that he must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. All right, so what's going on here? For us to understand what's going on here, we need just a little bit of Old Testament context. This picture of eating a scroll is pulled right out of Ezekiel 2 and 3. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go ahead and read it, and I think we'll have it up on the screen for you, uh, just so you can see the similarity. Okay? So this is from Ezekiel 2 and 3. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. He says, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, the scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on, on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with it. Feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, and speak with my words to them. Right? Sound familiar? This idea of eating, digesting, and speaking God's word was and is the work of a prophet. John is just borrowing this imagery from Ezekiel. Now, I know that when many of us think about prophecy or prophets, I think we get the idea in our mind of kind of like a fortune teller, but with God's power, right? We think about the prophecies in the Old Testament foretelling something that God would do in the future, or maybe even the hundreds of prophecies foretelling the coming Messiah. And we assume that the work of the prophet was just to tell people what was coming at some point in the future. 
but I want us to think about the work of a prophet in a fuller sense. Prophets were God's ambassadors. They were men of God sent to both God's people and outsiders, and they represented God. They were his witnesses, but they were also his mouthpiece. God would send prophets to people to represent him and speak his words and to deliver his message. So John being commissioned here as a prophet by eating, digesting, and speaking the contents of the scroll is significant. But even more significant are the contents of the scroll that he is, that he is to eat. Now, if you remember, when we talked about the scroll from chapter 5, the scroll was the deed to paradise contained in it, and, and in it was God's plan for redemption and judgment and renewal of all creation. So now here we have it, we have again a scroll in it. It's called a little scroll. Now, it's called little perhaps because, you know, John's supposed to eat it, so you don't want to eat that big of a scroll, that could be it. Or, more likely, this is because this scroll is the portion of the larger scroll that is designated for the church. It's God's plan of redemption for his people. What we call the gospel. It is the good news that victory has been won. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has now purchased redemption for his people. He has taken their judgment for their sin on himself and has redeemed them through the cross. And as John takes the scroll as the representative in this vision for the church and eats it, he is then called to speak it. See, this is the work of the prophet. And this is the work for every Christian. If you are a Christian in here this morning, it's important that you understand this. You are a prophet, and you are to prophesy. You are God's ambassador and mouthpiece sent to your brothers and sisters in the church, as well as those outside of it. And you are called to speak God's message to them, the gospel. But if we are going to be effective prophets in our speaking the gospel, this means we must also eat what prophets eat. It means we must be serious about the ingesting and digesting of the word of God. It isn't just enough to have the word of God in a book on the shelf or in a phone on our hand. We have to take it in. We have to digest it. We have to get it in our guts. Church, I want you to understand that that is why we do things the way we do around here. This is why our MCs are structured the way they are. This is why our Sunday gatherings are structured the way they are. This is why we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and this is why we walk through the gospel every week in the liturgy. This is why we offer things like Porterbrook and MC training nights, because our elders are serious about God and the gospel, because our elders are serious about equipping us to be able to prophesy well, because they are serious about our city and our city is in desperate need of the gospel. The Quad Cities area is the 27th least church area in America, according to a Barna Group poll. And you and I, 
We are God's ambassadors and mouthpiece who have been sent to them with God's gospel message. So, we've got to get the gospel into our guts and let it take effect on us. We've got to ingest it and digest, digest it so that it will transform us from the inside out to shape our thoughts, our desires, our motives, and ultimately, our words. And then we are to speak those words. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't know. I'm not really all that good with words. I'm not really all that charismatic. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I can be all that persuasive. Well, understandable. And I've got great news for you. Chapter 10 reminds us that we are to ingest, ingest, digest, and proclaim the gospel. But chapter 11 reminds us that the power of the gospel is not found in the messenger, but in the message itself. Okay? So let's take a look at the, at the two witnesses of chapter 11. Again, I'm just summarize what goes on here. Uh, God says, that he will grant his authority to his two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Uh, another way of saying 42 months or three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. It says that they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And it says if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. They're given all sorts of other crazy powers. They have the power to shut the sky and power to turn water into blood and power to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. We see as they testify, at the end of their testimony, a beast comes from the bottomless pit and kills them. But after, the three, and a half, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them and they stood up on their feet. Then they hear a loud voice from heaven saying, to them, come up here, and they go up to heaven in a cloud. Seems pretty straightforward, right? So who are these two witnesses? What is John referring to? What, what is this all about? We see that these, these two are referred to as two witnesses, two olive trees, and two lampstands. And some people will look at, at the actions um, that they're performing of fire consuming their foes and the shout, shutting of the sky so that no rain will fall. And they will see the obvious allusion to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And some will look at the turning of the water to blood and the striking of the earth with plagues and see the obvious allusion to Moses. So there are some that have concluded that these two witnesses literally are Elijah and Moses. Right? But that's why our interpretation of Revelation is, in, is important. It's why a, literous, a, a literal interpretation, of, or <clears throat> most, most often is not the case. And I don't think that's the case of what's going on here. See, the two witnesses described here, I don't believe are two specific individuals, but rather representative of the church as a whole. So where do I get that from? Well, we get the number two witnesses here from Deuteronomy 17 that establishes the truthfulness of a charge will only be accepted on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
Also, we know that the final words of Jesus before his ascension in Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But see, most importantly here is this, is, is where John calls them the two lampstands, which if you remember back in chapter one, the seven lampstands there were in reference to the seven churches or the representative of the global church. It would be pretty odd for John to use the same symbolic identifier for two different ideas. So John is giving personification to the church as a whole in these two witnesses. But that raises the obvious question. What's up with the fire coming out of their mouth and all of that? Is this like some sort of spiritual gift that I haven't heard about? I want to shoot fire. No, I don't think so. See, I think what John is trying to get across here isn't about what they are actually doing, but rather is a symbolic portrayal of the power that is in what they are proclaiming. Just as Elijah called down fire from heaven to prove that there is only one living God, and just like Moses, through the use of turning water to blood and bringing plagues on the earth, was able to set Israel free from their slavery in Egypt, now the gospel being proclaimed to the world has the power both to show our God is superior to all gods and to set people free from their slavery to sin and death. John isn't trying to say that the church is made up of some sort of supernatural superheroes. I mean, just look around. We aren't some sort of fantastic four X-Men or Justice League. Just like Moses and Elijah, we are regular men and women with a supernatural God and a supernaturally charged message. This should, this should take an immense amount of pressure off of us, shouldn't it? I mean, listen, let's just think about church history for a second. Think about this moment when Jesus ascends into heaven. What is Christianity at that point? From the view of the world, they're nothing more than an offshoot of Judaism whose leader has been killed as a criminal. That's it. How many Christians are there in the entire world at this point? At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, it says that there were 120 people gathered. About the same, maybe a little bit more than the number of people in this room. And, and these people are living in a culture that is controlled by an oppressive regime that has just put Jesus to death. They had almost no money, no building to gather together outside of their homes, no social equity, and no government approval. The only things that they had was the Holy Spirit and the gospel. All they had was a powerful God and a powerful message. And it was all they needed. All of us here today are evidence of God's ability to grow his church through normal, everyday people that have a powerful God and a powerful message. 
So John, in, in these two witnesses, is showing that the power is not in the presenter, but in the message itself. So John has spent up to this point doing one thing, reminding the church of their vocation to prophesy, to consume the gospel, to be changed by the gospel, and then to proclaim the gospel. To take it in and speak it out. See, John doesn't just call the church here to prophesy. He's also encouraging them to persevere. So we see that these two witnesses proclaim powerfully of the gospel for 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years until they finish their testimony. But then they suffer their death, and for three and a half days, the people and nations and languages look at their dead bodies and exchange gifts and celebrate their deaths because they were a torment to them. Then a breath of God enters them and they rise to heaven in a cloud right before the final trumpet. So what are we to make of this? See, John is showing the church that Jesus isn't just the words they proclaim. That Jesus is the pattern of their life. He is showing them that the, the road they walk is one that has already been walked before. It is the way of the cross. We see that their words are not just about the life, death, and resurrection of, the, of Jesus, but the way they live is also patterned after his life. Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years. And in that three and a half years, he, he made faithful and powerful dec declaration of the kingdom of God. He was, a pre or <clears throat> he was then put to death, and he was dead for three days, and the breath of God entered him, and he was resurrected and went to heaven on a cloud. See, John is reminding the church that the world has never played nice with God. And to identify with Jesus is a costly identification. To proclaim Jesus and to walk as he walked in this life will lead the church in the way of suffering. I mean, Jesus makes this clear. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, John is laying out a vision of the church that has tasted the sweetness of the gospel has been captured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This fact that they have been set free from their sin and no longer have to fear death. And that church living out a, as a prophetic people, sharing the truth of the gospel to anybody that will listen and living their life as gospel-shaped people, but also persevering to the end through the bitterness of suffering. And now hear me, when I say suffering, I'm talking about a wide range of things. For many in John's day, and many throughout the world today, that does mean physical persecution, it can mean imprisonment, and possibly even death. For us, by God's grace, that has not been, to this point, our experience in America. 
for the vast majority. Suffering for the gospel may, may take many forms. It may mean that we have friends or family that don't understand our, life, our way of life anymore and we lose friendship. It may mean we do not get as far ahead in school or business because in our worship of Jesus, we walk with integrity and don't cut corners. It may mean we suffer scoffing, insult, ridicule, misunderstandings, persecution, imprisonment, or possibly even death. But it's not a contest to see how much we can suffer. Suffering for the Christian is not a contest, but it is an inevitability. And John's saying here, what he's saying is he's saying that whatever suffering is in the path, whatever loss we have to absorb, whatever bitterness we have to endure, finish the race, persevere to the end. But John knows that this call to persevere in the face of suffering will take courage. And so laced within these two chapters, John gives us three things that I want to look at that are to give the Christian the courage to both prophesy and persevere in the face of suffering. So before I close, I want to look back quickly through these chapters at God's, uh, at God's ownership of heaven and earth here, shown in the mighty angel. God's ownership of his people, showing in the, shown in the measuring of the temple. And God's ownership of the end, shown in the seventh trumpet. Okay, so first, God's ownership of heaven and earth, shown in the mighty angel. We see at the beginning of chapter 10, it says that a mighty angel comes down from heaven. It says that the angel was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face shined like the sun. And his legs were like pillars of fire. And when he called out, his voice was like a lion roaring. Now, every one of these references has been used already to describe the resurrected and glorified Jesus. So this mighty angel here is just a representation of the resurrected Jesus who has taken the scroll from God and is now God's messenger delivering it to the church. But what is significant and should produce confidence in us is not just that this angel represents the resurrected Jesus, but how and where he stands. It says it three times in chapter 10. He has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. This is the posture of dominance. John is seeing the eternal and glorified Jesus who has complete ownership over all of creation. Jesus and taking over the plan of the redemption is in complete control over all the events of his creation. Jesus has authority over both the heaven and the earth. And there can be nothing that comes against his church that he is not in complete control over. Jesus has established his complete ownership over heaven and earth, over life and over death, and over sin and over the grave, God has complete and total control over all of his creation. This should be very reassuring to us that we are not left to our own to fight a battle 
But remember that the, this battle has already been won and is being walked out by the God of all creation who does as he pleases. But see, Jesus is not just shown as the owner over his creation. We see in the measuring of the temple that he is the owner over his church. It is the in the beginning of chapter 11, we see that John is given a rod and told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on Revelation, says this, the measuring of the temple connotes God's presence, which is guaranteed to be with the temple community living on earth before the consummation. Even before the church age began, God made a decree that secured the salvation of all, of all people who would become genuine members of the church. Therefore, the measuring has the same meaning as the sealing we saw in chapter 7. John measuring the temple is God saying that these people are mine and I will be with them. God's presence with us and in us is what takes ordinary men and women and makes them supernaturally courageous both to prophesy and persevere. What gives the church its power to speak in spite of their suffering is that of the power of the Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit working in us. But lastly, God is not only owner over his creation and over his church, but he is also owner over the end. Let's look at chapter 11, starting in verse 15. Actually, some reading out of here, okay? Uh, it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the king of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. See, the greatest encouragement shown here to the church is that God wins. That we know the final score, and so that can change how we play the game. We can embrace our identity as prophets and persevere through suffering of all, knowing that there is a better reward that is waiting for us. Christ has become victorious over sin and death through his suffering a sinner's death on our behalf, and he has earned us the reward of eternal life with him, a righteous man's reward. It is not our speaking, and it is not our suffering that has earned this for us, that is, the speaking and suffering is, is what happens when we grasp a hold of, of this gospel. And we have the power to persevere in suffering 
knowing that the sufferings of today are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us when he comes again. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough word. It is a tough um, thing for us to see that just as Jesus came and lived and suffered, that we too are called to walk that path. So Father, I pray for us that um, whatever you have decided, whatever suffering you lay in our path, that, um, that God, you would give us strength to endure, that you would hold us close to the end as you've promised, that we would persevere. Father, I pray that you would give us an image of being with you forever where you have put an end to all suffering. And I pray that that would strengthen us and embolden us to both speak, to prophesy your gospel to those in the church and those outside. And that would empower us to persevere. So Father, I pray that you would do this, that you would be glorified and that we would we would see the joy in identifying with you, no matter what the cost. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.